If you've been with us for six weeks, we've been talking through all of these sayings. You've now heard all seven of them tonight. But you remember, we've talked about the cross, how on that first Good Friday, Jesus was nailed to it at 9 a.m. And he went on the cross, and over the course of the next three hours, he said three different things. The first being, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And he fulfilled Psalm chapter 22, a psalm that David had written, had written rather a thousand years before that moment. Jesus starts interceding for the very people who are crucifying him. But then after that, Jesus looked to the thief who was on the cross beside him and fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, he was crucified between, between two sinners. But that sinner beside him professed faith in him and showed repentance. So Jesus said to that sinner, today you will join me in paradise. Then Jesus looked outward and he saw his mother and he saw John, the one whom he loved. And he said, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. And then the 12 o'clock hour came. And we're told at 12 o'clock, the sixth hour, we're told in that moment, darkness started to sweep over creation. And it was a darkness that was reminiscent of Exodus chapter 10, because if you remember in Exodus, darkness spread over Egypt for three days before that first Passover lamb was slayed. But here at Golgotha, this darkness spreads for three hours before Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb for us, before his blood was spilled and he gave up that last breath, darkness came across creation and it lasted for three hours. And in that moment of darkness, judgment and God's wrath was being poured out on the sun, the wrath that was due me and it was due to you as well. So Jesus stopped looking outward and he looked upward and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the three hours of darkness continues as Jesus is enduring now a spiritual desolation in combination already with the physical and emotional pain he'd already been enduring. But then we're told in the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., in that moment, Jesus knows it's all coming to that conclusion. So Jesus asks for the sour wine. He says, I thirst. In doing so, he fulfills Psalm chapter 69, the prophecy, but he also is revealing his humanity because he needed a drink so he could communicate those two final things. And then he said, it is finished. He declared those three words that communicated that Jesus had accomplished the task that the Father had given him, that he had fulfilled the plan of redemption through Calvary. And then after he said, it is finished, he spoke to the Father once again, and he said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Jesus is actually quoting a psalm from Psalm chapter 31. It's interesting, actually, some scholars have noted that that was a psalm that was actually quoted by Jewish children as a bedtime psalm, a prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when Jesus says spirit, he's not speaking of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking of his human spirit, his human existence, that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, but Jesus knew he had done everything that he had been called to do, and it was time to return to the right hand of God. And he said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when Jesus communicated those words, what he was actually doing was he was demonstrating that he meant what he said in John chapter 10. Because if you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life. 
He said, I lay it down on my own accord. And Jesus is in complete control at Calvary, and he says, Father, now into your hands I commit my life, my spirit. The seventh and final saying from Calvary, it communicates two different truths about Jesus. It illustrates both his humility, but also his authority. It illustrates his humility because Jesus Christ came into this world to serve, not be served. Jesus Christ was not on that cross because he deserved it. He was on that cross because you deserved it, and I deserve it too. But Jesus Christ, in his humility, set aside his own interests, but took on your interest as his own, and he was obedient to the will of the Lord, even obedient to death. Jesus demonstrated humility. That's why we call today a Good Friday. It's good because it is finished for us. But Jesus also demonstrated his authority because in that moment, Jesus chose when to relinquish his life. He was in complete control. And he said, Lord, now that I've done everything you've asked me to do, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why would Jesus, he who knew no sin, become our sin? The answer was actually right there in Luke chapter 23, going back to the text in verse 45. The motivation of Jesus' heart, you see a picture of it, because we're told in this moment as he gives up his life back to the Father, we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus died on that cross so the curtain could be torn in two. Some supernatural things happen. We don't have time to go through them all, but Luke takes note of this one thing in particular, that the curtain in the temple's torn in two. Matthew says it's from top to bottom. And this curtain is torn. And what was the purpose of that curtain? It was a divider. And who was it dividing? It was dividing God from man. You see, sin separates us from God. There's then this issue of separation. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 because if you remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they received the curse and Jesus took the curse on the cross, but with that curse came the consequence of separation. That Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because God is holy and he cannot have sinners in his midst. So there was a separation of relationship that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But God did not give up on his people. Instead, he promised a Messiah in that same garden. And then he started to roll out a plan of redemption right there in Genesis. In Genesis 12, he picks a man named Abram to start a nation called Israel. And he says, I'm starting with you, an elderly pagan man with no children, so that you can't take any of the credit. And people will know that it was God who started this whole thing. And God chooses Abram, and he makes a people for himself. Then he chooses Moses to establish a law, to establish rules for how man can commune with God. And God said there has to be some rules and boundaries because, once again, we have sin in our lives. So in the Old Testament, they constructed a temple. And in that temple, they had this place called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it was separated from the holy place by this curtain. And the curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and no one would dare go behind that curtain 
because behind that curtain, the presence of God would rest in the temple. But there was one individual who was allowed to go behind that curtain. It was the high priest. And the high priest would go behind the curtain just once a year on what was known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. And when the high priest would go behind that curtain and enter into the presence of God, he took that very seriously. And God set up rules because the high priest had sin, and he told the high priest, you first have to offer a sacrifice for yourself. So he would do so, and on this one special day a year, after he had atoned for his own sin, he would then pick two goats to deal with the sin of Israel. Because we're told without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So these two goats are selected by the high priest, and the first one is taken as a substitutionary sacrifice. And that goat was slaughtered as a sacrifice for Israel. All of the sin of Israel was symbolically being placed on that goat, and that goat took the punishment. He was killed, and then the high priest would take that blood behind the curtain, and he would splash it on the mercy seat of God. But then there was a second goat in this process, and that goat was known as the scapegoat. And the high priest would come out, he'd lay hands on that goat, and he would start confessing all the junk, all the sin of Israel. And what he was doing was he was symbolically transferring Israel's sin to that scapegoat. And then they would release the scapegoat out into the wilderness. And why did that matter? It's because it was symbolically showing Israel God is taking their sin far away from them. But the problem was they had to keep coming back and doing this year after year after year because they couldn't take away their sin. It was impossible. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus came to finish the job. In verse 11, we're told, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus secured an eternal redemption. He did what the high priest could not do. And what we see in the cross is Jesus actually fulfills all three players on that day of atonement. Jesus is our high priest. He's our intercessor. He's the middleman. He's the only one that can connect us back to God. Jesus is our great high priest, but he's also that first goat. And right there on that cross, the Son of God spilled his blood as a substitute for you and a substitute for me. But Jesus is also our scapegoat because through the finished work of Christ, he actually takes away our sins and they are far removed from us. That now through our faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of him, now God looks at us as clean and righteous and we don't have to go back and offer more sacrifices because Hebrews chapter nine said it was once and for all. Jesus secured an eternal redemption for you and me. Then the question is how on earth do we receive it? Can I tell you how you receive that gift of salvation? You pray that same prayer Jesus prayed. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You surrender your life. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life. He gave it to the Father. Said, I am submitting it to you. I'm handing it over to you. And the only way you can receive this free gift of salvation is when you pray that same prayer of honesty from your heart, Lord, into your hands, I give you my life. I hand things over to you for who you are and what you've done. And when you pray that prayer, we're told you can actually be redeemed. It's interesting in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus told us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And here's the kicker. For whoever would save his life, he will lose it. But then he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is actually the wisest thing you could ever do. Because you might say, I'm giving away my life, but Jesus said, actually, no, you're saving it. You're receiving a better life, a new life, an eternal life. But the only way you can find it is by saying, Lord, into your hands I commit myself. I give my life over to you in holy surrender because the Son in holy surrender gave his life to you for me. And my question for you to consider tonight is, have you ever committed your life into the hands of God? Have you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Because we can sing songs and we can feel emotional and we can look to the cross But if you've never actually surrendered and submitted your life to the lordship of Christ, it's all for naught Because singing songs won't get you to heaven Coming to good friday service won't get you to heaven But committing your life to the lordship of jesus christ It gives you an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, and God starts to live in and through you, and then you actually walk in newness of life. That's why the cross is a beautiful reminder to us tonight that a door's been opened for every single one of us. God's invited us into his presence. The veil has been torn, and we can walk right in and get to know him tonight. If you pray that same prayer into your hands, I commit my spirit. We're going to conclude our time of worship tonight by going to the Lord's table. In fact, at this moment, I'm going to ask our deacons, those who are going to be helping with this meal, to go ahead and make your way to your tables. Just our deacons who are serving tonight, everyone else remain seated for just a moment. They're going to help administrate this meal, and we're going to approach the Lord's table together in a moment. But before we do so, it's important for us to establish a few things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says to examine your heart before you approach the Lord's table. And tonight, we're going to remember and reflect on the cross, and that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a meal we take together as believers to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take this meal, and it's going to be a wonderful time of worship. But before we take the meal, I'm going to encourage you to take a few moments to examine your heart. And I want to have, ask people to examine in two different ways. The first way I want you to examine your heart is I want you to examine it and just say, Lord, have I ever actually walked behind that curtain? Have I truly surrendered my life to you? Lord, do I know you or do I just know about you? And ask yourself the honest question tonight. 
Have you ever committed and surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If you have not done so, there's no greater opportunity than right now. And in a moment, as we approach these tables to take the meal, if that's you and God's leading you tonight to make this a good Friday, to make the greatest decision you'll ever make, I'm going to encourage you to find myself, a minister, one of our deacons who are standing, tap them on the shoulder and just simply say, I want to receive salvation tonight. I want to know Jesus. And we would love to show you how, and then you can actually participate in this meal with us. And we can even celebrate your decision through baptism on Sunday. We already have seven coming into the baptismal waters on Sunday, and we have room for more. But examine your heart. Is God leading you to make a decision tonight? But then for the rest of us, those that have already walked through the curtain and received Jesus Christ, I'm going to encourage you to examine your heart in a different way. For a few moments, take some time to confess sin. Take some time to give thanks to the Lord for what he's done. He has done what we could not do ourselves. That's why it's a good Friday. And take some time to examine your heart. Come back to the Lord. Confess, repent, give thanks. And in a moment, when you're prepared, what I'm going to ask you to do is for people to approach these tables. We have two in the front. We have two, four on the side, excuse me, and two on the back. And we have deacons at each one. They have the elements of the bread and the cup. I'm going to ask for families or groups of friends to go to one of these tables, whichever respective table is closest to you. Make your way over there, and these deacons will distribute the elements to you. When you receive those elements, I'm going to ask groups of friends or families to take those elements and then find some spot here in the worship center, wherever it may be. You can go back to your chairs. You can go in the aisles. But I'm going to ask for you guys actually to take those elements together. Now, some of you say, I have no idea what to do. Good news is there's going to be a slide that's going to come up right here on the screen. It's very simple. Simple. We take this meal in remembrance of him. It's symbolic, the bread and the cup. Tonight we actually have matzah bread, which is pressed, just as Christ was pressed for our iniquities. It actually has holes in it as he was pierced for our transgressions. And you'll take that bread representing his body. You'll take the cup representing the blood. And I'm going to ask for the head of each household to lead that meal. So if there are husbands in the room, I'm going to ask for you to lead your family in this. And you will simply take that bread and tell your family in a circle that this is the body of Christ broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Likewise, for the cup, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of him. If you're not here as a family, if you're here with friends, take it together with friends. You can include friends. If you don't have someone that's the natural person to be the leader, someone step up and say, it's going to be me. And after you take that meal in fellowship as a small group, I'm going to ask for someone in that circle to lead that group in a word of prayer. And then after you say amen, I'm going to ask for that group to reverently and quietly exit this room. You can stick around and talk. Just take it outside because this room will be a place of worship for the next several minutes. But in a moment, I'm going to pray to wrap up our time here. And after I say amen, as God leads, there's no rush. You and your group make your way to a table, receive those elements, take the meal, pray, and then come back on Sunday because Sunday will be a great time of celebration. Today we reflect and we remember the cross. On Sunday we celebrate the new life that comes through the resurrection. But as for tonight, examine your hearts. 
and recommit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's approach the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for this time. Lord, I pray for everyone that approaches the table. Lord, if there's some in this room that need to approach the table, Lord, to receive that gift of salvation, I pray that you'll give them the courage to do so. And Lord, for all of us that are already in Christ Jesus, I pray that we'll approach this table, Lord, with a fresh perspective and a fresh appreciation, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. Lord, may you be honored and glorified tonight through our families, through our small groups and our fellowship. Lord, we take this meal to remember you, but Lord, we also take this meal to remember that you will return. And Lord, we take this meal with great anticipation. And even so, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in this time as we approach your table together. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As God leads, you come.